0: Thank you for filling those out. We appreciate it. If you still have one in your hands and you haven't got a chance to turn it in, you can do so after service. Well, good morning. Welcome to Coastline. Uh, If you uh, have been praying, please keep praying for our junior hires, which are up at camp right now. Uh, They have gotten rain for all day yesterday. They got snow last night. And we're hoping that, so they woke up to snow today, and we're hoping it will snow on them this afternoon, which just makes every camp so much better. So please be praying for them, and they will be home, uh, geez, tomorrow, right? My wife knows. Tomorrow, they'll be home soon. So please be praying for them. Uh, You know, long before Hamilton became the theater phenomenon that kind of took over the country, uh, there was Les Miserables. Now, Les Miserables came out in the 1980s. That was when it first kind of came to Broadway. And it kind of came to Broadway during what was like a golden age of Broadway theater and productions. You had Grease, you had Cats, you had Phantom of the Opera. All of these were these huge kind of moments and touchstones where these productions started in New York and then came through every major city. And lots of us probably went and saw them or at least became familiar with them as a result. Les Mis was unique in that it was also a book written by Victor Hugo, and so it was a way for students to become familiar with the story and the book without needing to read 1,200 pages about the French Revolution. And so it became this kind of familiar story that we knew. And like a lot with Hamilton, it became a production where you knew the music before you ever went into the show. And if you didn't know the music, you at least knew this image. Because it was on t-shirts and sweatshirts, it was around town, it became a thing that you knew about even if you never actually went to it. Now, Les Miserables is French, it would translate as the miserable ones, but if you are to probably make it a little bit more accurate, it would probably best translate as the victims. That's kind of the best understanding of what Les Miserables means, the victims, which then asks the questions, the victims of what? What are these characters, the victims, about? And really, it follows France as it descends slowly into the French Revolution and follows the lives and the plight of the people who are affected by a very high aristocracy, by a very high sort of king who is ruling over France and the incredibly poor people around them. You're familiar with the story of Marie Antoinette, who is told that the French peasants are actually starving to death and they don't have bread. And her response was, well, then let them eat cake. That kind of response there is shadowed in Les Miserables, where you have the main character Jean Valjean, who was put into prison for years because he's stealing a loaf of bread in order to eat. So that kind of story is echoed there in the the sort of play. And as you follow the characters, every one of them has a tragedy that is affecting them due to the sort of power and oppression that they're experiencing by the system and the government that they live under. The most tragic character in the entire thing, which knowing my preaching, of course I'm going to tell you about the most tragic character that there is, is Fantine. Now Fantine is a college student. When we meet her, she falls in love with a young man. She becomes pregnant and he leaves her. And she is left to try to raise her child on her own. She works in a factory, but she's fired from the factory. And eventually the only way that she can actually provide for her child is to become a prostitute. When that doesn't work, she ends up selling her hair. And when that doesn't work, she ends up selling her teeth. In the end, she dies in the play from tuberculosis. Again, it's a feel-good story uh, just about life. So this is kind of a familiar plot line that we see in a lot of the plays and a lot of the movies that we really dearly love about how suffering and pain changes the protagonist into somebody different than we originally knew them when the play or the movie first started. In in the Batman story, you have Bruce Wayne who is just a child and he becomes the Batman due to watching the murder of his parents due to a robbery that happens on the street of Gotham that pain and that suffering changes him into the character that we will know. If you watch Andor on Disney Plus, you become familiar with the story of Cassian Andor, whose family and his entire people are killed on a planet by the Empire, which makes him into the likely rebel who will lead people against uh, against the, rep, the Empire in the very first few movies. If you watched the TV show Hawkeye, or if you knew the uh, Marvel movies, you know that Hawkeye is this hero for most of the plot line until his children are taken in the snap by Thanos, and then he becomes this much darker, much more grim character called Ronan, who's out to write every wrong. And if you watch Forrest Gump, you know Lieutenant Dan, who is your idyllic soldier, your true believer, the one who does everything right, and yet in an explosion, he loses his legs and he becomes this bitter and jaded character. So Esther 2, where we're going to be today, is fascinating because it takes this story that we just went through of a good person who suffers and it changes them and it actually reverses it. It takes a look at it from a completely different angle. What if the oppressive forces that you experienced, what if the suffering that you experienced, what if the enemies that you encountered in life didn't oppress you and push you down and take things away from you? What if it elevated you? What if it raised you? What if it took you higher than you ever had been in your life? What if, as a result of the oppression and the suffering and the loss, you became also wealthier and healthier and safer? What if you got everything anybody ever wanted, but it also cost you everything you ever had? Basically, consider this question. What if Fantine from Les Robs was forced to become a prostitute, not on the streets, but in a castle. See, this is kind of the plot of Esther 2. I want to say just from the very beginning, and I've had uh, the women on the coastline staff really kind of walking me through this and thinking through this sermon a lot as well. Melinda, too, has just been in my ear about this sermon because it tackles some really difficult topics. In fact, I'm very grateful that the junior hires aren't here today. Uh, because it's going to take a very unvarnished look at pain and suffering, and more specifically, uh, sexuality. Uh, In the passage that we're going to be in today, we're going to see Esther gain a throne, but lose her freedom, lose her identity, lose her agency, and have even her own sexuality kind of taken away from her by this empire and by this machine. In a way, it's funny how relevant this feels as we kind of watch the Harvey Weinstein uh, trial kind of play out in front of us. As we continue to see kind of the consequences of the Jeffrey Epstein uh, trial kind of happen, as we live in the era after Me Too, this becomes like a familiar topic of watching how power and oppression and sexuality get mixed in this terrible thing that really wounds people. And I'm aware... Uh, that for some of you, this might, in fact, come near some of your own stories. That part of this might feel a little bit close to home, that part of you has been victimized, or you've lost, or part of the kind of assault nature of what we're going to look at, it's going to be close to yours. And so what I want to let you know is I think the message is really, really hopeful today. I think it's a really wonderful message, but it's one that's going to have some edges to it. Uh, And what I can promise you is I will navigate this as, as safely as I can. Uh, Before I start into the sermon, I'm going to actually pray, and I'm going to give a little bit of extended time into prayer. And if you're just worried about yourself today, uh, the loft is open, and it's largely empty, and it's really dark and super hot. But uh, if you just want to listen in quiet, that's a great place for you to go today and to kind of listen to this sermon. Uh, What I also want to say is for many of you, I know Esther is a hero And I really want her to stay that way. At the end of the sermon, I want her to be that hero. My goal is in way to knock her off of a pedestal for you. But I want to look at her in 3D. I kind of want to look all the way around her story and see exactly who she is. Because the Esther we're going to meet today is going to be very different than the Esther that's going to be at the end of the story. She's going to be young, naive, and she's going to change over the course of the preaching. And she nor Mordecai are perfect. But here's the deal. We don't need them to be. We don't need them to be this sort of exemplary avatar, this kind of beacon of what to be like. In fact, we're going to find that their lives look a lot more like ours, full of mistakes and regrets and decisions that we wish we could take back. But here's just like the great part about the Bible. Those are the sorts of people that God seemingly uses all the time. And so we're not going to dirty her up, but we're going to take a look at the story and try to see exactly what God is doing in it. Uh, Before we do anything, I'm going to pray. And as I said, I'm going to give us a little bit extra time in case you want some space. And then we're going to jump into what's a very exciting, dynamic, interesting, and scandalous kind of portion of Scripture. So would you pray? Lord, I thank you for this very mysterious book, for what it is, and for how different it is from everything else we have in Scripture that by what it does and doesn't do, it kind of invites us to ask you questions, to even engage our doubts at times, to ask you where exactly you are and the pain and suffering we experience, and then to wait for your answer and to see how you're going to respond. So Lord, for those who have been hurt in the past, and Esther comes near their hurt, Lord, would you give your grace and love, compassion, nearness, healing to them. And Lord, for those of us who love the Bible but are familiar, unfamiliar with the story, would you give us open eyes to see it and receive it? Lord, for those of us who doubt, we bring our doubts before you. When you ask that you, We ask that you would address them. And God, we ask that you just fill this room and make us people who love your word and trust you even in the dark times of life. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So where are we in terms of the Bible story? Where are we in terms of what is happening Uh, Just reviewing, if you weren't here last week, I'm just going to kind of do a quick moment on it, and I will tell you this. Uh, This is a series where it's going to be really important that you follow sermon by sermon by sermon. I would actually encourage you to sit down and read Esther in one whole sitting. I think it will really help you understand all of this, and if you miss a week, listen to it online so you can follow it, or else it's going to be a challenge to kind of track the entire thing. Where we are in this story is that Xerxes is the king who's leading the Persian Empire, At this time, the Persian Empire is expansive. It's bigger than the Roman Empire. It covers North Africa all the way down to halfway into the continent. It has all of the Middle East, and it's going to reach as far east as India. And as you have this huge section of land, the way that Xerxes leads the entire thing is through these elaborate parties, 180-day parties, these sorts of parties where he shows people his power, His wealth, his benevolence, and all of this is a way of helping you know that he is the sort of person you want to be a friend to, that you are lucky to be a member of the Persian Empire, and that to oppose it means opposing an empire that has resources and uh, resources that you never could even imagine. At the end of Esther 1, where we were last week, uh, Xerxes is drunk and he tries to make this big elaborate finish to his banquet by asking for his wife to come out at the same time that the strippers and prostitutes are there in the room. Essentially, and people have believed this for a while, he asked her to come out in her crown, but probably it's just her crown. He wants her to be displayed to the men, showing them the true beauty of the women of Persia, and she refuses. She won't do it, not surprisingly. Uh, And as a result, he sets her aside as the queen, And he warns everybody that any woman, whoever disrespects her husband like this, will likewise be set aside. Now we know from the history books that immediately after that banquet, that Xerxes then went to war with Greece and was defeated by Leonidas and his 300 Spartan soldiers, which is from the movie 300. That happens immediately after Vashti says no. So chances are, this banquet with Vashti is a chance for him to consolidate power, to help people trust him, to send their military with him, but he loses. When he's in Greece, he loses, and he comes back to Persia humiliated and defeated. There is a five-year gap between Esther 1 and Esther 2. When we pick up Esther 2, we are going to see a Xerxes who has been humbled, is defeated, is humiliated, and he regrets setting Vashti aside. He is lonely And yet his solution to his loneliness and to his humiliation is something that we have never seen before in the history of this planet. If you have your Bibles, open up to Esther 2, verses 1 through 4. Later, now that's five years later, okay, so it's been a while. Later, when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her, setting her aside and taking away her crown. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for the beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let the beauty treatments be given to them." So in this this kind of section of scripture, there's a couple of words which might be new to you. One of them is the word concubine. Concubine in the Latin means cubare. It means to lie down. These are women who lie down. These are the special mistresses that the king would have to enjoy himself with outside of his relationship with his wife. They exist just for his own sexual pleasure. When we read that, It seems scandalous to us with modern ears. The closest word that we would have to a king who summons all of the virgins of his kingdom to come be a part of his harem, this house of women that live with him, the only word that we really have for it is human trafficking. And I think that's an accurate word to use and for us to understand the scandal of what is happening. It's also important to know that the people of this day would not have been shocked by this kind of behavior. In every sort of ancient culture, including China and Africa, we know that kings had concubines. They had special women that were just there for their pleasure. And so the fact that he decides to build a harem, a house of women, Filled with concubines who are there for his pleasure, it is not scandalous. It fits the character of what we know about Xerxes that he is a man who loves alcohol and loves women. And when he's feeling lonely and when he's sad about his lost war, of course he turns to his favorite addiction. What is scandalous in this passage is the size of the harem that he tries to build for himself. Uh, We know that Solomon, King Solomon, had 300 concubines, okay? 300 women that he had for his sexual pleasure. What we know about this is that Xerxes is summoning every young virgin from North Africa, the Middle East, and India to come be a part of his harem. It's an unfathomable amount of women that he is calling and taking out of their homes, out of their families, and bringing to himself. I mean, if Solomon had 300... Does Xerxes have 30,000? Is it way more than that? We don't have any sort of number, but it's put here in this passage so we can understand this is an insane uh, decision and a huge number of women that he is bringing to himself. I want you to imagine just the impact that this has on the world. You have young women who at this time would have likely been married by the age of 15, They are virgins, they are young, they are being taken away from their parents, away from the protection of their father, and taken into the bed of this crazy person. All for one night. And that's the deal, it's only for one night. You are brought into his bedroom, and in that one night, you have one night with him, and afterwards you are set aside in what one theologian says, opulent uh, destruction. Meaning that there is no longer any family for you. There is no dating for you. There is no husband for you. You live in the beauty of the palace. You live amongst all of the wealth you could ever imagine, but you will never have any sort of future or any sort of family. You simply live out your days in this house of women. Think about the impact that has on thousands upon thousands upon thousands of women. Now think about their fathers who just lost their daughters, the brothers who lost their sisters, The men who lost their fiances think about being a young man growing up and suddenly all of the women in your village are gone, how that impacts you. And you also have the story that there's these young men who are being caught up as well to oversee the harem, this house of women, and they're being castrated and being called eunuchs before they ever can come and do their role. This is this huge, unbelievable uh, act of sexual violence that Xerxes inflicts upon nations for his own pleasure. It's really no surprise that Xerxes is assassinated by his own guards about 10 years from this moment. It's known that Xerxes used to love to take the wives of his officials for his own. In fact, he took his own brother's wife for his own, and then when he was done with her, he took his brother's daughter for himself. This is a bad guy. And no surprise, one day when he's in his bedroom, his guards come in and kill him. I just want you to know that he gets what's coming to him as I tell you this story. Now, amidst this kind of huge huge kind of collection of women, we have this Jewish girl named Hadessa who was caught in the midst of this collection of young women from the nation. Look at Esther 2, verse 5 through 7. Now, there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shammai, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken ca- captive with King Jehoiakim. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadessa. Whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother had died. So, a few things that we know about her she's an orphan, which means at some point her parents had been killed. Maybe that was at the fall of Jerusalem when the Babylonian Empire conquered them. Maybe that was in the journey, the long walking journey from Jerusalem to Babylon. Maybe that was in service of the Persian kingdom. We don't know when she lost her parents, but she was orphaned. And suddenly, alone in this world, and her cousin Mordecai takes her in, and he cares for her and loves for her. We know that she's also a minority. She is a Jew living in Persia, but more than that, All of the Jews have gone back to Jerusalem, or at least most of them. So she is now truly a minority in this nation when there's not all these Jews around. She is only there because Mordecai, her cousin, works in the palace. And so she's there because that's his job. So she has very few people that are like her that are around her also. And we also know that she's beautiful. And that's going to serve her really well, but it's also going to get in the way. And it's going to make her more likely to be kind of drawn into Xerxes' world. Uh, the rabbis used to say that Esther was one of the four most beautiful women to ever live. There was Sarah, there was Abigail, there was Esther, and then there was Melinda. Those four. And Alice Ford, four, she just kind of cracks the top of the list. Here we pick it up in 2, 8 through 9. <laughs> the king's order and edict had been proclaimed. Many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Hegai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Hegai, who had been put in charge of the harem. And so she now... Is caught up in the net and she is headed to have her one night with the king. There's a lot that happens in chapter two that I'm not gonna cover about the beauty treatments that every young woman gets to prepare herself to be with the king, but they are extensive. And I think that's important because if we're not careful, we could make this into a very sweet rom com. There was a peasant girl. Who had, and there was a king of a kingdom who needed a queen. And so he summoned all the young women. They were given one year of beauty treatments. And at the end, she won and became queen forever. Esther 1 is there to let us know this is not that kind of story. This is a bad guy. This is not the sort of person you want to be with. And this is not the way that we should understand the story. We can't romanticize it. We have to see it exactly as it is. Now her cousin Mordecai, when he adopts her, And when he sees that she's kind of in the spot where she's being sucked into the harem, he's worried about her, and he gives her a command, and this is very important for where we're going to go next. Verse 10, Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Now, we don't know why Mordecai prohibits her from sharing her ethnicity. But we must assume that he has a good reason. That that in some sort of way, if her Jewishness became known, known, it would make her more vulnerable. And to what extent that she's more vulnerable, we simply have to kind of guess and fill in the gaps. We're told here that she has two names, that she is called both Hadessa, which is a Jewish name, but she's also known as Esther, which is Persian. This would have been typical for any sort of immigrant. It happens today where uh, we have people who have different names. One of my best friends growing up, he was Japanese. His name was Daniel, but his Japanese name was Sato. It's this kind of thing that we understand where in cultures, in order to fit in, you might have different names. And so she has two kind of her status in this world. She takes the name Esther, which is interesting because it's the Persian name for Ishtar. Ishtar is the goddess of love and war, which is exactly who she's going to become at the end of the story. So there's some sort of foreshadowing again. But when Mordecai tells her that she has to conceal her ethnicity, It's going to have an impact on her that he probably cannot see in this moment. She is going to be orphaned again from him. She cannot tell anybody that Mordecai is her cousin and he's acting as her father. She's going to be separated from her people again. She's going to be exiled again from her home into this new sort of place. Every level of victimization that she had known at the first stage when she'd moved there, she experiences again as she goes into the harem. She is completely powerless in the story, and that's really important for us to recognize. She is stuck between the commands of two men. One is Xerxes, who summons all of the women to his bed, and the other is Mordecai, her cousin, who commands her not to speak of this to anyone. She is not Vashti she we believe, comes from a royal family who had been trained to live and know how to act in a palace. But that's not Esther. She is this humble girl from a humble background, and she is caught up into this whole scheme, and she's just 14. And all she can do is listen to the advice that she is given here in the story. But she is clever, and she's really pretty smart, and she is a survivor, and she makes a decision. Although she's been dealt a terrible hand in the story, she is going to play it. And she's going to play it to her best advantage. We're told three times in Esther 2 that she builds, the, builds favor with the leader of the harem, with the officials, and then finally with Xerxes. We know that Esther goes to Xerxes' bed in year four after he brings all the women from the harem. That means, as one theologian guesses, that she is probably girl number 1,460 into his bed. And she uses that to her advantage. It says that she goes to the head of the harem, and she asks the head of the harem, what does Xerxes like in bed? And then she does it. And as a result of being beautiful and giving the man exactly what he wants and exactly what he likes, He chooses her to become his next queen. The Bible's crazy, people. Look at two... 15 through 18. When the turn came for Esther, the young woman Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abigail, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Hegai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the tenth month, the tenth of Tishri, in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Now, all of this time, Xerxes has no idea that she's actually a Jew. You wonder how she pulled that off. How exactly was she able to conceal her identity for so long? There's a rabbi named Rabbi David Foreman, and he gets into the story, and he says, the way that she's able to conceal her identity is because she does what Vashti is unwilling to do. Xerxes wanted a queen who would be a symbol of Persia, would be Mother Persia, who would be the one that everybody could project all their ideals upon, somebody who would represent every woman, and somebody who everybody could aspire to be like. And Vashti chooses that she's not willing to pay the price to do that, but Esther is. He imagines that every time Xerxes would have said, so where is your accent from? Who are you exactly? Where's your family? She would say something like, let's not talk about my past. Let's talk about our future and what we're going to do for Persia together. And as she says this, she becomes all Xerxes needs, all Xerxes wants, by constantly deflecting, giving him exactly what he wants in the story. And all it costs her is everything she ever had and everyone she ever, and everything she ever was. Okay, so now let's try to take this story bring it to our lives. What are we supposed to do with this passage? How is this supposed to help me parent my child today? How is this supposed to help me be a better boss at work? Well, I think it's, and we've brought this up in the passage so far. This is a good time for us to ask the question again, where is God in this story? It's not just that his name is never mentioned in the book of Esther. We cannot see any sign of his activity or his providence Or his work. There's a story in the book of Genesis about Sarah, Abraham's wife. Uh, Abraham and Sarah enter into Egypt. And when they enter into Egypt, Sarah was so beautiful that Pharaoh takes her into his harem to become one of his concubines. But we're told in the scriptures that God protects Sarah and that she never actually has her night with the king. That doesn't happen for Esther. She has her night with the king and experiences all that comes with that. If God can protect women in harems and if he has protected women going into harems and if this is a story about God's faithfulness, then why isn't he doing it for her? Or for anybody else who's in this story? If God can act and has acted, then why has he stopped acting now? I think this is important for us because we are going to have this moment at some point in our lives. We have these stories in scriptures about miracles that we just never are gonna experience. Moses gets burning bushes. Mary gets an angel who comes and speaks to her and tells her exactly what God wants for her. Paul has visions about where he is supposed to go next and what he's supposed to do, but most of us don't get that kind of experience. We don't have that kind of direction. God doesn't intervene in our lives. We don't experience that kind of deliverance, and nor does Esther. There's never a moment in the book of Esther where she knows what God is doing. There's no special word that's given to her to tell her what to do or how to act. She can only do what she thinks that God would have her do. She can only do what she thinks is righteous in this moment. And as a result, Esther's life looks more like ours than anybody else's in Scripture. Because so often you and I don't know exactly what we're supposed to do in any given moment because we aren't getting these sort of crazy angelic moments and epiphanies from the Scriptures. I think the book of Esther is in the text. The reason why it's in the Bible is because it's to let us know that this is what the normal life of faith looks like. It is not burning bushes, but it's quiet faithfulness to God and learning to listen for the whispers and not the shouts of the Spirit. If we only had Exodus, if we only had Joshua, if we only had Judges, we would always expect the spectacular. And when we didn't, we would get massively disappointed. But we're given the book of Esther to remind us that sometimes God is silent and distant, and sometimes we cannot tell what he is doing at all. The book of Esther reminds us that God is at work, not just in the seen, but also in the unseen. And sometimes it's really hard to discern what he is doing. Esther reminds us that, yes, God does move mountains. And let me tell you, in your life, you will see God at some point move a mountain that seems immovable to you. You will see God do the miraculous, and you will say the only way that could have happened is by God. But those moments are rare and infrequent. A lot of the prayers that we're going to offer for one another in sickness and illness, a lot of them don't get answered. A lot of times, the tragedy we fear is the tragedy that comes. And yet, even in the midst of the tragedy and the loss, God is still there working, oftentimes behind the scene in the whispers And if you're asking, where is God in your life? Chances are he is moving quietly and whispering to you still, but he is certainly still acting. Second thing we could take from this passage. In Esther, we're able to see that God is able to move and act even in the midst of incredible wickedness. In the book of Esther, we see that God really gives people free will and allows them to use it. Xerxes can choose to use his power however he sees fit. He can choose to begin wars, execute bridge builders, and summon the virgins to his bed. And you have a free will as well. And you can decide how you're going to live today. And what you want your life to become. You can choose any sort of path that you desire. Both what is good for you and also what is toxic for you. And God will rarely stop you. He will allow you to make terrible decisions and to blow up your life. And allow you to experience the consequences of it all. He also promises that for all of the decisions we make, all men will give an account. So you can make your decisions, but there is an accountability that every one of us will give to God. But in the scriptures, we also see that although he has given man the freedom to choose and to live his life, he also retains the power to redirect all of our efforts towards his ultimate ends. God's going to allow us to make choices, but oftentimes what he does is then bends those choices back so it suits his will and suits his plan. He will let let you make a decision that he doesn't like, but he oftentimes takes the consequences of that and bends it back so it serves his own purposes. In this story, he's going to allow Xerxes to summon the women to his bed, but he's also going to send Esther there. And although Esther is going to suffer, she also is going to come about to lead the salvation of the Jewish people from the oppression experienced by Haman, who we haven't met yet. He has free will, Xerxes says. But God has a sovereign will that He never ever stops. Uh, The way that we can think about this comes out of the story of Josh. I'm sorry, of Joseph, in the book of Genesis. Joseph is sold by his brothers into slavery. He is then put into prison because he will not sleep with Potiphar's wife, and ultimately he rises to become the second greatest person in the kingdom. But then he's put in a position to save Abraham's family because he has been wise enough to save up food for the famine. And he tells them in, as in uh, Genesis 50, You intended this for evil, but God intended it for good. Meaning God allowed you to sell me into slavery, but God redeemed the story so that it turned out to be salvation. And that's what he promises to do for all of us. As much as we might suffer and be oppressed and hurt, he says ultimately there's nothing that we experience and there's nothing that can happen to us that can ultimately stop his plan. He is always able to work all things for our good for those of us who love him. The tension of our life is learning to accept that what has happened to me is evil and yet it can still be used by God. And allow those two things to live in tension. And finally this, and I think this might be uh, the more surprising kind of part of the sermon for us in this web. God is able to redirect even the terrible choices that we make. If we look at the story of Esther, there's another book that's happening in, right at the same time. It's being written in the same moment as the story of Daniel. In the story of Daniel, we follow the life of a young man and his three friends who are taken up in this same great kind of collection of youth, but they're castrated. They're made eunuchs, and they serve in the Babylonian Empire and then later in the Persian Empire. And the decisions that they make are unique. We're told that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will not eat from the king's table because they want to follow kosher law, and so they eat only vegetables. We're told that they're, to- that they're summoned to come worship before this great golden statue that Nebuchadnezzar builds, and they refuse to. They won't do so. And Daniel is ultimately told he can no longer pray to his God, and he goes up into his room and prays still, and as a result, is thrown into the lion's den. They choose time and time again resistance in the face of the empire. And as a result, they're all sentenced to death at some point, and they're all saved. God intervenes on their behalf. What's interesting about Esther is that these are not the decisions that they make. They do not choose resistance They choose strategic compliance and survival. We know that Esther eats from the table of the king. We know that she hides her faith and hides her Jewish identity. We know that she figures out how she can please the king instead of resisting going into his bed and being found there. She makes all of these decisions as a young woman and as a survivor that are different and in fact the complete opposite of Daniel and Shadrach Meshach and Abednego I was trying to think of how we could think about Esther in this story and I really want to be fair to her what I think her story is is this unique combination of Bathsheba who is caught in the desires of a king and she has very little choice in it the decisions are made for her and of Peter by the fire denying Jesus three times She is both a victim, and she's also a survivor, and she's navigating these two things, trying to figure out how she makes it in this world. And I think that, to be fair with her, that is so relatable. I cannot imagine being in her spot, and I think I would make every one of the same decisions, and so would you. And if we're going to be really fair, if we're going to say that they don't do this thing perfectly, Mordecai probably deserves worse. Because he is the one, by his age, by his gender, by his position as her father probably should have been looking out for her more than expecting her to look out for herself as a 14-year-old girl in this empire. And what he chooses for her uh, is not the best for what we see consistently in Scripture. Here's what's really fascinating in the book of Esther. It never condemns them. It never condemns them for their decisions. The story is presented honestly. It's presented without varnish. It doesn't come to their defense. But it says simply, this is who they are. And I think that's really encouraging because that allows us to see that Esther and Mordecai are this mixture of good and bad just like us. They don't do the things perfectly and neither do we. They make mistakes. They have regrets. Their faith is imperfect at times, as is ours. I mean, let's be honest, very few of us make great decisions when we feel threatened and are scared. And here's the great news about it, is that this story is just the beginning. We are only in Esther 2. We might think, oftentimes, that as a result of a decision like this, Esther's story is ruined, it's tarnished forever, that there's no coming back from becoming the queen of Persia. But that's just not going to be it. I mean, oftentimes our fear is that when we make a decision that brings up a lot of regret and a lot of doubt and a lot of frustration with ourselves, we think, well, that's it. There is no coming back from this. And the book of Esther tells us that's just not true. It doesn't matter what has happened in your story so far. There is still a chance for God to write a different ending. There's still a chance for God to come and act in your life and to turn things around for you in a way that you never could expect. Look, Some of you need to hear that message for somebody else. For some of you, there's someone in your life where they've made a decision and you think, that's it, they've ruined it. They've done it. There's no coming back from this. We need to see the story of Esther and see there is always a way back in God's kingdom. And again, I think it's important that we always come back to Christ. How does this build our faith and our confidence in Jesus? And so I think simply to remember that in Gethsemane, Jesus found himself a victim as well, of an empire who was coming to crush him, and by a Jewish leadership who had abandoned him and believed that he was actually someone evil and not someone to good. And there in Gethsemane, he prays for any other way for God to act other than the cross. And God says no. No. That Jesus knows exactly what it's like to suffer, to be oppressed, to pray out to God for some different sort of story and for not, for not being able to get it. And God doesn't answer that way. If that's your story, Jesus understands completely. And yet God moves in the suffering of Jesus to bring about our redemption. He bends it back towards his will. He turns all things for good. And my promise for you is that if your life has gone poorly, that doesn't mean that it can't be transformed into something really beautiful and good. Look, for some of you, you've already experienced that. You've already seen how God has taken something tragic and heavy and sad, and he's already turned it into something good. Where are those things? It's good for us to remember them. Because I think for a lot of us, we're in the middle of a situation that is currently unredeemed. We haven't seen the salvation come to it. We haven't seen the good thing happen yet. And we need to remember the past things of where God has redeemed the sorrow to get us through the present and the sadness that exists. And maybe that's just a prayer request that we could have As we finish this time, would you bow your heads? Lord, would you bring to mind in our own hearts and lives the places where you have already worked in the past? The places where you worked above and beyond anybody's decision and will to bring about goodness and redemption and health and wholeness and joy. Lord, remind us of those stories. God, for those of us who are still waiting, still in a place of suffering, who only sees the effects and the pain and the shrapnel-embedded soul that we still have, when things have not been turned around, when things have not, in a sense, been given a sort of bow on it, Lord, we give those things to you, and we ask, Lord, that you would move in them, you would change them, that you would heal them, and you bring something beautiful out of the sadness and sorrow. Again, we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.